Join us on this podcast for three conversations with faculty and administrators, which we hope will provide you with a unique window into the level of thought and intentionality that drives our approach to education. Hi, I'm Lisa Acker, and I am the head of student services. This is my third year at Milken. Hi, I'm Lee Moore Dankner. I'm the associate head of school for academic affairs and strategic initiatives, and this is my 12th year at Milken. I'm Rabbi Gordon Bernack-Hunan. I'm the rabbinic head at Milken, and I've been here for a mere 30 years. I'm Kimberly Schwartz, the chief curriculum and program officer at Milken, and this is my 15th year. Okay, so the first question is, what does a healthy community look like and how do we foster one? How do we center health and well-being at Milken? For me, a healthy community is one in which people feel like they belong, a community in which people feel that they have meaningful connections with others, and that's true for children and it's true for adults as well. And so one of the things that we've really focused on since we restructured the school is making possible for our students to feel connected with like-minded adults and other children and lots of academic and co-curricular opportunities to really dig, you know, take a deep dive and dig into an area of interest and for the adults to feel that connection and opportunity for growth as well. I'm going to jump in from the perspective of our core values and I'm going to say that each year at Milken we spend a lot of energy and uh, time trying to really develop our core values. So two years ago, we looked at the idea of kavod habriot, this notion of honoring, dignifying, treating every person with compassion. And I think that's a phenomenal value. And I would say one of the things that's beautiful about our values is that they come in pairs or intention. So I, the way I like to think about it is that everybody counts, everybody is seen, Everybody should be respected. And in addition to being somebody who counts, you should also be accountable. You should be a person who has shared mutual responsibility. And that, I would say, also gives you dignity besides being seen and heard. Well, I'm just thinking of like what's, what does active and healthy and engaged look like? And I'm looking out and I can see they're playing cornhole and I can see there's another group that's doing some other kind of activity and I could see somebody else playing a game. And I think what health and wellness looks like in a school is really active and engaged students. Part of that is creating a, like a multi-pronged approach having to do with preventative, making sure that you have preventative programs that meet the needs of all students and teaching them coping skills. And then the second part of that is learning how to assess when students need support and engaging them and creating programs to engage the students who need help. When I think about health in general and how we create space for health in our personal lives, in the lives of our families, in our communities, in our school, one of the great challenges is time. Right. Um, we always talk about how we haven't gotten to the doctor or we didn't meal prep because we ran out of time. Um, and so our, our goals for our health and the health of those close to us often are, are thwarted by time. And I think one of the most meaningful ways that we center health and well-being at Milken is the way we use our very limited resource of time. Um, you know, we've redesigned our schedule a couple times in the 15 years that I've been here. And what I've appreciated every time is a commitment on the part of educators, parents, and students to hold on to time in our schedule that is specifically about well-being, right? So to have 10-minute passing periods where kids have enough time to actually pack up, think about where they're going, you know, take care of their biological needs, maybe check in with a friend or check in with a teacher and still get to their next class on time. That they have a shared lunchtime where they can be doing what Lisa was just observing through the window in terms of playing games and engaging in activities. That there's time in the day that is set aside from sort of what we normally think of active learning in a formal classroom setting, but two to three times a week our kids and our faculty step outside of that and engage in our Lishma block where they can relearn, review, connect in less formal ways. Um, and also our entire Kahila block. So to go back 
certainly more to what you were saying about like belonging to something, right? Um, and so what Gordon was saying about all of our core values, you know, that's a space in where our kids engage in spiritual practice, engage in advisory programs where they talk about those preventative things, but also process challenges that are that are happening. And I don't think it's unique to Milken to have passing periods <laughs> or, or shared lunches or advisory, but I do think what's unique to Milken is the premium we put on holding on to time that really reflects what matters most to us. Yeah. And it's also programming from, for like for example, we have a house system. So it's not just in school with academics, but out, outside of school, there's we've created a house system so students can actually connect with students in other grades and other divisions and with faculty. So that creates a sense of community and belonging as well. So not just in the classroom, but outside of the classroom with a whole school approach to a house system. I was gonna say that you know, for me, going back to the core values, first of all, I think that sometimes I'll say this is our Achilles heel, that this is one of the challenges because we have such a desire, such a drive to create and, you know, just to envision new possibilities. And think we, I think we mean it from the standpoint of, wow, look what we're giving to our students by making all these things possible. But I think sometimes for instance, when Kimberly, when you redesign the schedule, that is a gift that sometimes really surpasses all the things that we can give. And I would say that like the idea of just pause to resole, develop both the virtue of academic excellence and the virtue of creativity, and also the virtue of being able to hold back and make space for people to become more whole. I think that's something we, we work at but it's always a struggle. I think one of the things that you're describing, Gordon, is the tension that exists naturally within and between our core values. Yes, this year our core value of the year, if you will, is Kavod Abriot, but last year it was Shabbat B'Nafash, which is exactly what Gordon is talking about, accomplishing that balance, you know, finding a way to, to uh, pause and resole. Um, when I think about health and wellness in our community, I'm, you know, I, I can't help but think about the last... I don't know, decade, five years, and most recently in the wake of the pandemic, the need, you know, what necessitated this pausing as educators and really centering in on the priorities and the priorities are the student, uh, the students at the center of it all. The world that they're growing up in is not the world that any of us grew up in. Um, their exposure, uh, media, social media, just exposure to an awareness of so much in the world and so much to contend with, uh, you know, coupled with a pandemic and absence from socialization and learning and any kind of normal and natural existence for such a long time has really brought us to a place where we think about time and schedules and we think about student services, you know, the comprehensive gamut of what that means proactively and responsibly. We think about core values underpinning, you know, our Jewish learning just underpinning that experience for our students. Um, and so it's a balance, but it's a very important one for our children. For you know, sure. we also think about things like playing off of that. We think about things like spending the time in advisory to borrow from positive psychology and teach strengths-based learning. So strength-based learning helps students to help form their identity and it helps strengthen them, their communication with their teachers and their classmates to teach them about their strengths. But it also helps create community to learn other people's strengths. So it helps them to help other people to shine and it helps them to feel their, that sense of connection. So I think borrowing from different areas of psychology that we know are impactful to learning, we have the space to do that because we have assigned advisory time that we can bring that into teaching kids skills. Can I just say something about you know, this question of a healthy community? I, th I think one of the most important things in the school, maybe in the top three, is the quality of our collaboration. Mm -hmm. I think that makes an enormous difference, not only for our own experience, but the impact on students and teachers and, and parents. And, you know, I've been part of discussions and arguments for lots of years where I'm thinking, okay, what's more important, the well-being of the individual or the flourishing of community? And I guess I would say the answer would be yes. 
<laughs> and, you know, I just, I think about how, like, the ability to collaborate between the counselors and the rabbis and the school administrators and leaders to try and bring multiple perspectives together into this question of what does a healthy community look like? I'm just gonna finish with this thought, which is I think a healthy community looks like the following. And it's the most difficult day of the year, Purim. Purim. Exactly. Okay. It couldn't be. It is the best and the most difficult because the question is: Can a community appropriately laugh at itself? And how do you do that by holding the right side of the line? That's what I mean by difficult. But I always think like that's a barometer of our social health if we're able to do that in a way that is respectful and dignifying, but also, you know, shows our own foibles and our own limitations. I had a chicken suit on last year. <laughs> I, I, I also want to say, you know, Gordon, when you were just speaking about the power of our collaboration, it is so powerful and such a gift to be in a team that is extensive and each of us has our area or areas where we're real experts and, and can share that. And I also appreciate that there's a decent amount of blurring of the lines um, between our various areas uh, of responsibility. And I, I recently um, was having Shabbat lunch with a, an alum who I hadn't seen in many, many years. And she said, what was your job our senior year? Were you our counselor? And I said, no. <laughs> and she said, why were we in your office all the time? Right. <laughs> and I said, because as the assistant principal for your division, it, it was my job to know you and to create a safe space for you to be, you know, and, and to contribute to helping make milk in a place where you wanted to be and you felt comfortable and you felt like you could just be. Right. And yeah. so the fact that my office was a place you could just be. Yeah. We often think of it's the counselors who create that safe space for you. But I think, you know, the beauty uh, of Milken is that even if you're not the counselor, you might be the math teacher or the assistant principal or the basketball coach. But what we really share that responsibility for creating a space that's healthy and safe for kids. And I do have to add that Milken has really put their money where their mouth is because we have the largest student support program in L.A. And I'm saying that because when you combine counselors and learning support specialists and director of student life and all the people who drive student life and make it the community that it is, it's if you are going to say that you're supporting students' mental health, then you're gonna put your money where your mouth is and create this team, and they have. They have created the team. We have a lot of people to support the kids that we have, especially the ratio is incredible. Lisa is making that comment because um, her role didn't exist prior to the restructure <laughs> of the school. And uh, you know, as I was saying before, we recognized as leaders in the school that there was a desperate need for us to in addition to cultivating and fostering academic skills, intellectual prowess, that we really needed to address who students are and who they become as people, grounded, stable, accomplished individuals, resilient. And so we created the, the student services team and we brought Lisa on board to con conduct the orchestra. <laughs> Um, but yes, to Gordon's point, it's uh, no one is, works in a silo. It's, it's collaboration. This collaboration. Exactly. It's all dependent on collaboration. You know, the rabbis have to be able to work mm -hmm. with the counselors and teachers have to be able to work with, you know, the uh, instructional leaders and with the division dean. And it's a it's a joint. It's, we're all rowing in the same direction. It's a joint effort. And I think that's what makes it really unique and successful. I will also say that there is sometimes a perception in different communities that, you know, if you add the fluff, if you give a very long passing period, or if you give students, you know, a shorter day, or, you know, more flexibility with, uh, you know, with their choices and their schedule, or whatever the case may be, that you're diluting the academic 
program. And I think what's most remarkable is as we shift to a student-centered, um, you know, communal, relational philosophy in education, and as we embrace that more and more, we're finding that our students are accomplishing more and more because they're healthy and they're grounded. And so they have the, the space, you know, they have the ability to um, tackle and to try and to wrestle with. And I think that's something that we can be really proud of. I agree. And, and another area that I think sometimes people misunderstand, right? And think, well, if we're putting that in, then we must be giving up. Something up, yeah. Um, that exactly. we must be giving something up. And what we must be giving up is the seriousness of, of the academics is, is really the way, and I think it's our next question on here, actually. In what ways does Judaism matter in our institution? And, you know, in response to that question, I would say that's another thing where people often ask us, like, well, what, what will we be giving up by coming to a Jewish school? And, and my answer is somewhat flippantly, nothing, right? You're going to have something different than you would have somewhere else. But Judaism matters in our institution as much academically as it does right. in terms of health and well-being and community, right? So in, in my work in curriculum, I, I'm always looking at the ways that Jewish study at, is an academic discipline, Right. So Judaism is a religion and a community and a set of values and ethics and responsibility in the world. And it's also a certain way of studying and interacting with text and interacting with study partners. And that's a real skill set that our kids learn in a Jewish studies class. And then also they carry with them into the science lab and into the math classroom and into the debate in their history class just really deepens they're learning all around and gives them, you know, this just additional set of skills and also an additional lens through which they experience all of their learning. I think what I learned most um, in Beit Midrash was how to ask a, a critical and thoughtful question. And that is something I think about every day to this day is how to try and poke a hole in it, try and ask something thoughtful that maybe somebody hasn't asked before. First you're like presented with a text and it kind of sounds like gibberish and then you have to like reread it a few times or like you know you rewatch a movie and you discover new things every time. It's like when you study it with someone else and then you study it with your teacher you're all coming from different perspectives so we're all identifying different aspects of the text. So then we have to wonder like why did we encounter this the first time, or why is this so poignant in the text, but it's not as relevant later on. One of the core things is, yeah, like working in Chavruta, that was not something that would happen all the time in other classes. And I feel like in college, that's definitely a huge thing, like working in pods, working in pairs. My professor will just set us up with two people that I've never even met before, you know, and we have to work together to kind of pull something apart, like something that's really challenging. I, I thought it was fascinating that you could have this whole dialogue, this whole interface. Um, you're, you're sort of watching it play out. It's almost like a screenplay uh, between different rabbis, commentators, bringing back in Torah, um, about this very, very simple and specific thing. It's just another way of study. I feel like it's not something I've experienced in other classes and I've definitely never experienced prior to Milken. But the Beit Midrash Fellowship gives us the chance to be our own teachers and to learn from our peers. And then those skills, those advocacy skills, those public speaking, just critical analysis, you can apply to so many other subjects. There's, there's one teacher at the front of the room, but 20 teachers sitting at their desks. And I really feel like that's more the case for Beit Midrash than for any other class. Like once we get on a tangent or we like unlock something in a text, it's like we're so focused to the point where we're like, stop, like we need more time, like enough, like we need to keep going, we're on to something. I think one of the amazing things about Beit Midrash and my entire Jewish education at Milken was learning the word peoplehood and understanding that being Jewish was more than just a culture, it was more than just a religion, it was more than a people, it was more than a land. It, it, it um, defied racial barriers and ethnic barriers. Um, and was this larger sort of conceptual thing. And I think Beit Midrash really played into that, right? These lessons that we've learned um, that have been passed down for generations 
um, that I've seen in my own life serve that higher peoplehood. I think that learning to closely analyze a text in Beit Midrash is a skill that's going to serve me well, uh, both in my other classes in high school, but also down the line in college. It, even my policy classes that I took in college, I think Beit Midrash prepared me because for two reasons. I think, you know, first and foremost, it's that critical thinking component and taking something, especially in, in the policy field, that everybody sort of sees and takes for granted. In Beit Midrash, we look to poke holes in what is has been taken for granted and what we've read over and over again. Every time in Beit Midrash that, I, that we start a new unit, I feel like I'm coming to new realizations about myself and about how, how I as a Jew function in my Jewish community. The essence of it has been carried down through generations in my family. It had to have been, right? Um, and I was the benefactor of that, and I'm reading it you know, in this high school class, and eventually, hopefully one day, I'll be able to pass those values down uh, to my children. I think that um, strange that a rabbi would be thinking in like two different directions at the same time, <laughs> but... Really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that when it's woven together, it fulfills the beauty of what you just said. Okay, like a, an example, let's say you're in a classroom and you ask, well, what's the social, emotional, communal health of that class? Like that will be the underpinning for the potential for a depth of learning. And I, like, I joke with my students, I say, if you can sing together, you could learn at a really high level together. And I think that is a certain kind of safety and opening up and then being able to receive learning. I'm going to say at the same time when I said both sides, I mean, I also think that sometimes like, we need to say the sacred no in order to say the sacred yes. And that's a values kind of, I always think about it in Shabbat, if you don't build a certain, say enough to the weak, you will potentially lose all the power that comes from having one day a week that in, creates different kinds of relationships between you and other people and God and the earth. But like sometimes I think we do have to set that limit to birth a lot of other you know, values and virtues that we're capable of achieving, so. Judaism matters because we know that faith-based education is best for kids. We know that a faith-based and values-driven education uh, supports them, their mental health. We know it does it through not only support, but through security and through connection and developing their sense of identity, their sense of belonging. All of these things have been shown to support a foundation where students are, their suicidality goes down, their depression goes down, their um, drug and alcohol abuse goes down. All of those things are part of a faith-based education or they're increased through faith-based education. You know, I, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Lisa, I think about it um, metaphorically as an anchor. Mm -hmm. And I think that especially in this day and age, Children need anchors. Mm -hmm. There is so much lack of stability around them, um, and they need anchors. And what Judaism, I think, provides mm -hmm. is, you know, the traditions. Yes. It provides the predictability. It provides the moral compass. It provides the, you know, the script for conversations. For It provides the ways in which to wrestle with adversity. I mean, it just provides so much of a, you know, foundationally and just a container. Um, and so whether, I mean, we're a pluralistic community. We have families here who are very observant Jewishly, and we have families who are just Jew-ish. It doesn't matter. It's not about the level of observance. It's about, you know, the values. It's about the, as you said, the identity. It's about mm -hmm. the pride. It's about belonging to, you know, Gordon, you say it so beautifully. It's not just who you are, but whose you are, right? It's being a part of a people and a part of a tradition and a history that I think is so important. But for me also, Judaism is a call to action because there's so much about our, you know, beautiful tradition and religion that says, 
you don't exist on this world for yourself. You exist on this world mm. so that you can better the human experience for others. And so when I think about our curriculum, when I think about our programming, when I think about our co-curricular, everything that we do is designed to help both, you know, cultivate that self-confidence and self-esteem mm. and self-awareness, but also to show, you know, young people that they are part of a greater picture and that it's their responsibility to mm. contribute. I'll say, I have very little to say about this question. Um, but I, I want to take something that just came from a class that we were studying. And I, and I want to say this. Um, we actually had an interim head of school when I was younger. And he, I remember he said in class, he said, um, you know, when you're in love, the whole world's Jewish. And I think what he meant by that was, like, when you have this lens, you see everything is colored by that lens. What I would say is that I think that the lens of Judaism enables you to interact with the wonder, with the values, with the beauty of the larger world, and also be a filter, which helps you be grounded, as Limora, you were saying, like having this foundation, having this compass, so that you can make choices. I'm going to say what I learned in a class today. Um, we're talking about something a great Protestant um, sociologist said this. He said, he wrote a book called The Heretical Imperative. And what he means by that is, heresy isn't the way we think of it. Heresy means choice. And he says, the modern person is defined as a person for whom you have no choice but to choose. You are inundated with choice everywhere you go. And one of the questions that comes up with that is, okay, you have umpteen choices that you can make, do you know how to choose? <laughs> what is it that enables you to be able to choose? And what I would say is like, that's where Jewish tradition, experience, ritual, commandments, like all of that strengthens your capacity to filter the world with an understanding that it's imperfect, that it needs refinement, that we learn from the outside cultures, religions, traditions, and um, we hopefully contribute to the larger world, understanding that we have a lot of work to do and the world has a lot of repair that needs us to you know, contribute to it. But being able to connect with people with similar beliefs is a gift. Mm -hmm. And it's a gift to be able to kids to explore their own identity around this, but also to wrestle with their doubts and their questions mm -hmm. and be able to do that in an environment that is accepting of that and being guided by people. We have four rabbis on campus being guided by people who can help you wrestle with that is, is really an incredible gift. I think for me, you know, 15 years in, one of the things I love most about working in a Jewish school in particular is joy, right? So, you know, when, when Gordon started to say how Purim is the most difficult day of the year, and I said, it's the best day of the year, like, it, it is my favorite day of the entire year. And to, to work and live in a space where I know that day is coming. And it's not only that day, it's every Friday when we take some amount of time in our day, literally for Oneg, for joy. Um, and sometimes that's just breaking, literally breaking bread o over a challah together and, you know, or singing and dancing to Israeli music in the amphitheater, um, you know, during Sukkot when we brought in during town meeting, yeah. right. when everybody is doing the sweet Caroline, and, yeah, you know, it's just at, fun, right? At, you know, and they're calling up kids um, in the six eight division who are becoming bar and bat mitzvah in the coming week, or have just become bar and bat mitzvah. You know, when they're unfurling the Torah on Simchat Torah, like there's just there's so much joy in Jewish tradition and Jewish observance, and to have that play out in a school environment with young people, but not just young people, young people who are also like on the cusp of becoming adults, you know, and, and to be able to experience that kind of joy with them as an adult, um, and also to see the seeds of what will be their future 
practice and, and the way that Judaism brings joy. Yes, I'm like a super nerd and I love to like get into tech study and debate stuff and, you know, go out into the world and make it a better place. I wouldn't be an educator if I didn't think that was like my mandate here on earth. But like, but I also think like the joy piece is so much of what matters in this institution. Yeah. A hundred percent. And, you know, I mean, you're describing the community, you're describing the the palpable joy, excitement, enthusiasm on the ground. But I'm thinking about all the times that we certainly have had to make some difficult decisions or to just make decisions, important decisions in general. And I, I am really proud that in all of those conversations, the lens by which we analyze situations, the way in which we arrive at decisions are done with the utmost integrity that Judaism speaks to, that Judaism provides. I think that, you know, weighing the different possibilities and the perspectives and really honoring everyone that's involved. So, yes, I mean, the joy is key and it's nice to emerge from the, from the office and kind of like embrace that kind of joy. And I also think that it's given, I mean, for me personally, it's really given me a roadmap and the capacity to, you know, to lead alongside um, colleagues in a very meaningful way. I, I think also, you know, when we think about difficult decisions, sometimes those are programmatic or strategic or curricular. Um, but a lot of times the difficult decisions are like one kid at a time. And that's another core value that we haven't touched on yet in this conversation. But the fact that teshuva is a core value of this institution. Um, obviously, all of our core values come out of the Jewish tradition. And I feel like teshuva in particular is one that, you know, is maybe less universal, um, but such uh, so much at the heart of, of the work we do. So whether it's an actual disciplinary situation where a kid has, has caused harm and we're working with that kid to think about how to reflect on their actions, how to reflect on harm, how to repair, what does it mean to repair harm, um, especially as a young person, um, it, you know, who's developing, right? And how do we support that? And how do we structure that? And, and most importantly, or equally as importantly, at least, is the other sort of half of that teshuva equation, which is, you know, you've done your best to be reflective, to, to be sorry, to, to repair. And then how do we create a genuine path back into like full community totally. membership? Right. Totally. Um, and, and I feel like that's a lot of our society doesn't work that way. A lot of our society stops at the be sorry, make amends and it's hard to get a true reentry into into society at large when when you've done wrong, um, and, and I love that here, especially in a school setting, working with young people. There's a real sense of you've done the reflective work, you've done the repairing to the point that you can, and and then you're back. You know, you're you're in the good graces. You don't have to be shamed um, for wrongdoing, and certainly not forever. And, and uh, I love that. And, and I think it, it plays out in how we work together as adults also, and how we give each other feedback and how we continue to grow as individuals. The truth is that in this day and age, um, there are so many people and institutions and unfortunately even educators that would prefer to outsource discipline because they really want to sanitize the school community. But I think to your point, Kimberly, what Judaism helps us to do with the value of Chuva is to really lean in and to say, no, this is our community. These are our people. These are our children, you know, and our mandate is to make them the best that they can be. I mean, it's in our mission statement that they will surpass us, you know, that our our children will be the best that they can be, that they will help others become the best that they can be and that they will ultimately surpass us. And when I think of Chuva, I think of like the tenets behind Chuva are the notion of Rebuke, loving rebuke, right? Constructive criticism, like holding people accountable, but holding them up at the same time and showing them that there is a way back. So, um, Rabbi, am I passing the test here? Like, I'm looking at the <laughs> rabbi for all Good. my analyses. We may the, put you in the department. Uh, there we go. I'll, I'll yeah. be a Jewish studies teacher next. <laughs> Um, yeah, so but that's, that's what, an important value. That was, it's a really good example, though. Juve is a really good example of the collaboration because that comes together with the dean and the counselor and the rabbis and 
that to me, what it looks like is restorative justice through a Jewish lens. So it takes what I really love about restorative justice and it, it combines it with the collaborative approach so that the student is learning through the actions and the community members are learning through the actions, but then repairing, learning through repair, and then moving on. I'm going to say one more thing about, uh, you know, about this topic for now, you know, because as I said, Shabbat teaches you that it's harder to hold back than to keep going. <laughs> I think there's a tension between trying to make our community as rich and, you know, make the, the values operative and also thinking about how does our community, how does our Jewish community um, serve as a, uh, really like a model for building beyond ourselves. I think that sometimes I just stop and I say, wow, look at the extraordinary resources that our students have. And I'm not just thinking in terms of the financial resources at all. I'm thinking about the quality of people that come together in order to create these spaces and these containers mm -hmm. so that they can grow and flourish, mature. But that's, I think, all foundational. But I also think that our school has to make an impact beyond itself for many Jewish students who don't have the same opportunity to do this. Other Jewish schools that we can learn from and we can also share models that we've created and ultimately stretch beyond the Jewish people in civic responsibility in partnerships and learning from other schools which may be religious or may you know, be different kinds of private schools. So I think that's like a real, to me, I'll just say I had one teacher. Um, he was a giant of political theory. His name was John Rawls. And, you know, I think one of the things that he taught was this idea that when you are given greater opportunity, it has to redound to the benefit of others who don't have that opportunity. You've got to think about what, how you can be generative. And I think that's really important for us. Yeah. With, with, that's help. like with too much is given, much is expected. Yeah. <laughs> that's part of that too. Mm -hmm. Should I go to the I, next one? Yeah, I think we yeah. have time for one, uh, for one question. So how do you navigate the tension between tradition and change? Um, so I'll jump in and talk about this a little bit from a curricular standpoint. Um, I mean, we've certainly in the last few years maybe more than ever before, um, found that society outside of the walls of the school is more interested than ever in what's being taught and what is in the curriculum that's always been in the curriculum and what's new and what's being added and in, in what ways. Um, and so that's, that's definitely one of those places where I think we spend a lot of our time and energy thinking about that tension between tradition and change. And in our educational philosophy, we talk about that tension also is like, how do we hold on to, you know, existing standards of academic excellence and also be ready to adapt to what's coming next, to the world that our kids are living in, which is different from the one that we went, went to school in and we're, we're living in, you know, and, and what's going to come next for them, right? So how do we hold on to classical literature and also introduce our students to contemporary forms of media and literature, um, you know, to, to graphic novels, to how do we introduce them to how to read and understand tweets as, as a genre, right? Um, you know, they're, they're exposed to, to so much of the written word, but also to visuals in a way that previous generations were not. And how do we teach those things in the context of our classes? And how do we hold on to in our art classes, you know, the foundational drawing and painting kind of skills and also recognize that, you know, for our kids who um, are on an architecture path, that they're, there's a value in traditional by hand drafting and also a value in mastering, um, you know, 
technological software programs and our innovation lab. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of how we make curricular decisions, even what kinds of courses we offer, there's so much here. And, you know, one um, example I'll give of, of an actual course coming in and out. Um, you know, when, when I was growing up, we were required to take a government class. You had to take government or econ. Um, and, and we learned a lot about civics and how our, our democracy works and how to participate in it. And by the time I became a high school educator, that, that had sort of fallen away and some schools were still doing it, but not everybody was. And it certainly um, is not required by any body, educational body. And several years ago, when we looked at our graduation requirements and our seniors were, were taking any social science class they wanted, we looked at that and we said, you know what? We need to narrow. You know, we want them to have choice as, as seniors, um, but we also want to make sure that they're choosing within a civics um, requirement that, that we want. They don't all have to take government, but they all need to take a course that's going to introduce them to democratic principles, to information about what it means to be civically engaged. What is civil discourse? How do you get information? How do you act on information? What responsibility do we have as citizens in a democracy? That's really important. And it sort of fell out of curriculum over over time. And then we brought it back. And right after we brought it back, sort of everything started to say, like, civics education needs to needs to be taught because it, it does. And there's a value in some of those traditional things that come in and, yeah. and out. I mean, I think you're talking about the core outcomes, learning for change or becoming, you know, being able to adapt to change. Like, I think that's that's where it's at. So it's the other skills. It's the collaboration. It's the design thinking. It's the divergent creative problem solving. It's the iteration. Um, it's the grit and the resilience. It's the ability to engage in adaptive change. Like that's what's going to get them to the next step. So for me, Judaism is back to that anchor that provides the tradition. And all that you're talking about, you know, in terms of the required classes, that's back to the tradition because it's the desired outcomes. It's the necessary skill set. And then everything beyond that is just shaping malleable, adaptive, you know. I really um, want to talk people. about Jewish futures now, but I feel like you should be the one to do that. <laughs> no, well, no, I'll let, that'd be great for you to talk about. But I'll, I will say this. Um, my, my teacher, Rabbi Harold Schulweis Zal, he talked about Judaism as an old, new tradition, an yeah. old, new way of life. Yeah. And um, I think, like, that's at the essence of what Judaism is. I wouldn't say it's just, it's not just an anchor. It is like what, here's how I put it. If you, if you, um, you could die, Walter Kaufman says, a death by ice or a death by fire. Death by ice is you freeze in tradition and a death by fire is you burn up in universalism. I think that like it's that negotiation between tradition and change, which is how do I apply both like wisdom and values, but also like methodology. Like I would think that, you know, learning how to study Talmud in a certain way or cr critical, you know, study of commentaries of Torah is something that gives you tools to be able to adapt in that unknown, you know, world that I think you beautifully portray, you know, like that's what we have to grab with. I, I mean, the last thing I would say, I want to say something about education. Like I think that um, on the one hand, we have to be John Deweyan. Like we have to be adaptive and flexible and you know, learn how to be able to confront new situations. And on the other hand, we have to live with um, you know, these core values and wisdom of tradition as our significant other. And I think we should be perched between the two of those. Yeah. But um, when you're having those discussions, how important is it to make sure you have that expertise in the room and you take the time to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, I've worked in several private schools overseas and on the East Coast, and that's not a given. Mm -hmm. Like the, what, what you just said is not a given. Wrestling with that and being on the, the cusp of it instead of just in a reactionary mode is 
really important. It's like a high level analysis. It's a collaboration, respecting the people in the room to get to a decision that the experts in education and in their field feel are, are important to get to mm -hmm. that is something that the school does, I think, really well. As a new person, as a relative outsider, um, I think that the school does that very well. Go ahead. In our stated school-wide outcomes, you know, we articulate that we want our kids to be able to actively participate in as citizens in a democracy. We also articulate that we want them to be knowledgeable about Israel and connected to Israel so that they can participate in the ongoing discussions and development of Israel. We want them to be clear about who they are as Jews and as whole individuals so that they can reflect on what they're bringing with them that's unique, again, as an individual and as a Jew, into their college experience, into their experiences beyond college, so that they're contributing to the future of our world and to a Jewish future, right? And so we, we have the Jewish Futures Project where seniors literally put, you know, design ways that they can create Jewish engagement and share Jewish knowledge and open up Jewish discussion and connection on college campuses. And I think that's those kinds of outcomes that we talk about a lot, which is how we prepare our kids to participate in the world that they're going to live in, be in our school now, but also, and especially when they get beyond this school, that is exactly the navigation between tradition and change, right? Because all of those skills are coming from tradition, whether it's the Jewish tradition, whether it's American educational tradition, et cetera. But it's all for the sake of participating in something we can't define, right? That the, the goal is that they'll be able to join a conversation, that they'll be able to take action, not that they'll say certain things or do certain things, but that they'll be able to engage in those ways yeah. in whatever the world presents to them. Presents, yeah. yeah. I mean, our portrait of the graduate talks about thinking well, belonging to something greater than oneself and, and uh, taking positive action. And in that first, you know, we originally had the portrait of the graduate on the Talmud page where we had these bullets and then we had all around the perimeter of the page kind of the, the you know, Here's what we really mean by this. Here's what we really <laughs> mean by it. But one of the really salient points with Think Well is develop an, an innovative and entrepreneurial mindset. And I think that speaks to exactly what you're saying now, Kimberly, is just that ability to not predict what I'm going to have to to do in the future, but to be tooled enough to have, you know, the skilled enough, confident enough, um, compassionate, empathetic enough to be able to, you know, to, to be able to wrestle with whatever comes, comes my way. I think that's, you know, that's where that tension lies. How have the offerings changed over time at Milken and why do we make those adjustments? So I guess I will add in as, because I've witnessed this in action, and that is how we changed Lishma. I mean, Lishma was something that was two to three times a week after school. It gave our students the ability to meet with teachers. They could prep for tests. They could relearn something. They could meet with the class. And it's very valuable, super valuable. It was after school. It's always been after school, right after school. And what we learned from listening to our kids and our parents is that it conflicted with sports and that kids are nationally, but our kids included, are staying up really late in order to connect with other kids or to study. And for, for that reason, they, we worried about their mental health and we worried about their sleep habits. And because of that, we all worked together and created a schedule where Lishma is during the school day. So they can leave school to do sports or to do activities or spend time with family or to study. And we're setting this up so that their mental health is really considered. And it's really a good example of like the holistic approach and how we've, what we've offered has changed over time based on the comprehensive needs of students 
today? Yeah, we have a saying that's um, in this team and many teams, I think across the school, we have a saying that's uh, that we are not reactive, we are responsive. And when we hear feedback, as educators mm-hmm. always do, and we'll hear them from our students and from faculty and staff and parents, and some voices are really loud and some voices are very soft. Um, and as we try to you know, navigate through all of that, we just keep in the back of our minds responsive and not reactive, um, data-driven decisions. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to take something like Lishma, which is a program designed to cultivate you know, learning habits and uh, a love for lifelong learning, um, if that program isn't working as well as it can be working mm-hmm. after school, we're going to incorporate it into the day. That's just one example or the examples, Kimberly, that you provided earlier with curricular changes, mm-hmm. you know, over years. But, you know, if you think of a school as occurring on three realms, right, there is the curricular, there is the co-curricular, so that that which happens alongside, you know, formal instruction. And then there is the extracurricular that really gives students a menu of choices and options, depending on how, you know, what they're inclined to pursue. So when you think of all the many, many places where that process is iterative, where we have courses that we sunset and courses that we introduce and programs that we enhance and programs that we create and programs that, you know, we change. All of that is done in a very responsive, thoughtful, data-driven way. I was just going to jump in that I think that if you think of, when I first saw this question, I thought, eh, you know. I don't really have no. I can't even think about how to respond to it. To be honest, like I'm surrounded by people who have far more expertise. And then I was trying to look at it through bigger lens for myself. And I think that part of what we do when we look at the offerings is what do people want? Well, how is second? How is society changing? And how is it bringing in new things that when I look back over you know, into hoary antiquity. I remember, you know, like we had a totally different configuration of, let's say, electives that used to dominate the interest of our students. But I would say the third thing would be, you know, who are we? What is our mission? Why are we here? And I feel like I just want to give a lot of credit um, to the work that, you know, Kimberly, you've done and Limor as far as like alignment. Like if we don't have alignment between our mission, our core values, our portrait of the graduate, our educational philosophy, and the choices we make, then we wobble. (laughs) And we get lost in who's screaming loudly or what is society doing right here? And I would go back to, I think that's what Jewish existence is about, you know, back to it's a negotiation between what is going on in the larger world and what are, what's our own like navigating lens that allows us to say, yeah, we should really learn from that. But like, I'll say something. Okay. I do. I would not want to be a pre college. I do not want to be We are exclusively here in order to equip our students to do the next stage. That is a very vital part of that first part of the Portrait of the Graduate. But there's another part of what we do, which I want to say, this is making such a formative contribution to how our students think about their purpose in the world that we want to take time to make sure what we think is most fundamental is represented in our curriculum, even if lots of people want us to move in many different directions.